Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nice. And this is our Vuelta Espana recap. A little bit delayed, me catching up on some sleep. I don't know what Benji's been up to. I'll let him tell you in a second. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Lacole. If you haven't checked out their road performance cycling apparel provided to Bahrain McLaren in the Pro Peloton, by the way, what polls? Kind of doing a bit of a high miles of Beldia, according to La Flamme Rouge. Uh, this welter he came sixth overall on GC at this year's welter so a pretty good year for Byron McLaren I'd say actually with poles up there Mikel Lander doing pretty well in the tour as well and Bill Bow doing quite nicely in the Giro d'Italia so if you haven't checked out LeCole's kit you can see them at www.lecole.cc they've supported our podcast on this journey this year in 2020 which will be continuing in 2021 so supporting them helps us out but this Vuelta, Benji, well, actually, before we get into the Vuelta, what have you been doing? No cycling for like five days, six days, I don't know how long. I feel different. What have you been up to? Just like tractors hitting your car, things like that? <laughs> I'm going to stop about the tractor. It's not a fun moment to think about. <laughs> but um, I, um, as a full-time job, I'm a developer. I create web apps, uh, mobile apps, etc. And I think I've dove in a bit more into that recently now that i've got some more time for uh for just plain free time and yeah as a consequence i've also just become addicted to tv shows again so the mandalorian and such yeah i'm totally into it so that's great but i somewhat stepped out of cycling for a week perhaps good because i was a bit oversaturated with the whole season i feel like i'm ready to dive into the off season again with some fun spots with you yeah, I agree. It's uh, it almost felt like they they tried to get all the races in at once. And by the way, I want to say a big at the outset of this podcast, a big congratulations to all the race organizers. I'm not sure if we've done that spiel yet, but a big congrats to them for putting on as many races as they were able to. ASO, RCS, Flanders Classics. It's almost unbelievable that they were able to do so especially with the second wave of COVID hitting Europe and that had already started with, I think, the Welter on. It actually seems that despite the expense associated with it, it is almost safer in the bubble. It probably is statistically safer in the bubble. The Welter having zero positive COVID tests, um, so obviously you'd expect a lot more of that in the general population, the way Spain, etc., were going. So that is a really good sign for next year is that ASO, RCS, Flanders Classics can go to respective um, governments, local gov- governments that they require the permission of from to host races or put the races on and say, listen, we have a track record now. These are our procedures that we put in place to limit the, the um, COVID, etc. And the preventative measures we've done in 2020 were very effective, so please let us carry on the races. So that's really good or good news for 2021 in my view. But going, I just want to do a quick recap, not as long as the Giro one, a quick recap of the stages and the GC positions. 
Roglic was a heavy favorite for GC going in. He was at like $2, shortest favorite all year uh, for any of the GCs. Carapaz was second favorite. Actually, no, that is wrong. Tom Dumoulin was second favorite, and he was my pick for overall GC at $6, and Carapaz was about $8 to $9. And I think, Benji, you picked Danny Martinez for GC. I'm not having a go at you. I'm just trying to remind. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> well, that's not your – I picked him in my Velo Games team. He, uh, he just had a crash again. But, you know, I think he would have been up there on GC too. But anyway – 18 stages, these are the stage winners. Roglic won the first stage. He That late attack sprint against the GC guys, Sepp Kuss leading him out, goes into the red jersey already on stage one. Mark Soler won the second stage to Leckenberry uh, with a later, I think a downhill attack. Great stage win from Mark Soler. Stage three, Dan Martin won an uphill sprint, just beating Carapaz and Roglic. Roglic still in the red jersey. Stage four, the first flat sprint, Sam Bennett won pretty comfortably. Stage five, breakaway with, I think, Wellens and Aronsman and Guillaume Martin. Wellens dusted them off in an uphill sprint. Roglic, I think this might have been... Yeah, Roglic, I think, beat the other GC guys and maybe collected a few more seconds. Not sure, though. Stage six to Fort Miguel. This is the rainy stage, the... Jacket gate. We we still don't know what happened with Yumbo Visma. Maybe I'll try to bully some one of the Yumbo Visma guys um, into telling us what actually happened with the because they said they just had a tricky situation. It was a rainy stage. Roglic lost forty seconds. Carapaz goes into the red jersey. Yon Izagira, the swimmer, gets his uh, gets his rain cape out or didn't even wear a rain cape actually and won this stage. Stage seven. Mike Woods in that group of five. I like this stage finish. It was a very good stage beating Valverde and Co. I'm pretty sure this one was. Carapaz staying in red. Then the my best stage of this year as well to stage eight to Mon- Moncalvillo. Primoz Roglic won after a proper battle with Richie Carapaz, each throwing haymakers at one another, but Carapaz still keeps the red jersey stage nine. Next flat sprint says it's won by Pascal Ackerman. Was this the Sam Bennett relegation one, Benji? I'm guessing it, it was. I don't remember anymore. It's like I don't remember like, somehow running, yeah. coming across the line first, except for the last stage. Yeah, but I've got in general just a feeling that this Velta is over, but the Velta has a special thing where compared to other Grand Tours, stages don't stick as easily with me in my memory. And if I look at the Giro, for example, I believe that stages there seem to be much more clear in my memory compared to some of these Velta stage. And I don't know why that is. It feels like there wasn't that real queen stage where just everything exploded. And I think we'll talk about that a bit after we uh, go through the stages here. Yeah, I agree with you. And maybe it's not the Vuelta's fault. This year, it was you know at the back end of a very, very condensed, hectic schedule. Stage 10 to Swansea's. Primoz Roglic taking his third stage win goes back into the red jersey. I think this was the uh, the controversy regarding the sprint seconds or whatever, the three-second rule for him then protesting before the next stage maybe to Farapona. I think that's right. Yeah, Roglic won that uphill sprint when his team weren't really working all day except for the last K. Stage 11 to Farapona. David Godo won his first Grand Tour stage pretty easily actually. Roglic still in red. Stage 12, the Angleroo, won by Hugh Carthy and Richard Carapaz putting, I think, 12 seconds into Roglic takes back the red jersey. Stage 13, the ITT, the last 
we think the last real stage where there could have been big GC movement, or I thought that, to Mirador de Azaro. We, I thought the, the world was over at this point. Roglic won the ITT, beating, um, I think, Barter by like 0.2 of a second. That was pretty heartbreaking for him, taking his fourth stage win, goes back into the red jersey, I think, 36 seconds ahead of, or 38 seconds ahead of Richie Carapaz. Stage 14, Tim Wellens won another stage. Good welter from Tim Wellens. Roglic still in red. I think that was from a break as well. Yes, it was Wellens. That was a narrow, twisty ascent um, where Wellens, I think, got on the front ahead of Woods and Co., but Woods was probably the strongest. Jasper Philipson took his first Grand Tour stage win in Stage 15, a lovely sprint from him, and he nearly came second to Bennett on Stage 4. He looked really good all well to Philipson. He's going to be better than I even thought he was going to be, um, given his versatility, even on some of these uphill finishes. Stage 16 to Theodad Rodrigo, Magnus caught the Dane taking his biggest win this year and maybe for a couple of years. Uh, he's, I think, staying at Education First. He'll be joined by Danish compatriot Valgren next year. Robert still in red, stage 17, the last stage for GC action. Covertier, won by Godou from the break. Once again, same sort of scenario for his first stage win. Roglic hanging on to the red jersey after losing time, losing 25 seconds to Carapaz, winning the Vuelta there. Stage 18, the procession. Pascal Ackerman won the sprint by two inches ahead of Sam Bennett after Bennett didn't get the best lead out. So, yeah, just reminding you of what happened there. Anything, any of those that reminded you, oh, that was actually a great stage, Benji, or any of them kind of uh, forgetful? I'll say before you answer, too many medium mountain stages with a punchy finish. Like that Dan Martin stage win in stage three, that stage is going to be consigned to be forgotten by everybody. I'd already forgotten about it just because of the way it was raced. It was just too many of those medium mountain stages, I think. Yeah, I, I somewhat agree. Uh, we spoke about the profiles of La Vuelta versus the other Grand Tours in the last episode, I think, or on the Covatia stage recap and i believe that we had a clear point there that we are missing a real queen stage here and perhaps towards the end of this grand tour and that's something that really comes to mind here on the other opposite side if i compare it to previous vueltas people were saying that the vuelta is different than the Giro and tour because it's like this most of the time but i disagree that it's like this i i think that overall the vuelta is always a bit less higher mountain stages but they still keep the last week interesting and right now i felt like the gc was decided after the time trial and that kind of made me less interested in gc change in the last week perhaps the only moment that i really cared was that uh Carapaz attack where um Vatia, he dropped roglic so that was perhaps one of the uh key moments of the last week but all in all the funniest and most timed and Probably a decent tactic moment throughout this Grand Tour would be one of my top moments. And it's perhaps a silly moment, but I found it great that on stage 17 on the Covatia stage, we had a attack by Carapaz. He dropped Roglic and just not even a minute later, someone comes from the ashes of the breakaway and starts helping Roglic. And that was... Hofstede, Leonard Hofstede, and I don't know why, but these satellite rider moves always stick with me. I remember a satellite ride in the Giro of 2016 that brought Nibali the victory, 
And actually two of them, I think Kanga did in stage 20, could be wrong on that. And I think on stage 19, we had the also lovely Scarponi that was in the breakaway that day, literally stood still on one of the climbs to wait for Nibali that had attacked after the Kreisberg crash on top of, uh, I don't even know which climb it was, but it doesn't matter, Paso No, that's uh, the one Dumoulin had his issue with. I, I don't know. It was a climb in stage 19 of the, the Giro stage. Yeah. Anyway. I feel like those satellite rider moments stick with me a lot, and just the, the pure timing and essence of that Leonard Hofstede help. It might not have been the key help because I still believe that Soler probably helped him more, helped Roglic more than his own teammate did. But it's just the fact that you can put on these kind of stages one with perhaps only a major climb at the end because throughout that stage you had hills and some decent mountains, but. Nothing that was written at a top pace that drops most of the peloton. And as a consequence, there is the ability to send people in the breakaway that perhaps are not the best climbers. And Hofstede is not the best climber for sure. And he was sent in the breakaway that day. And it worked out perfectly. At the right moment, he was still there. And at the right moment, he was there to help out Roglic in the moment he needed him the most. So it's a small moment, but okay. I love it. I love it. Chris, I watched Chris Horner's video on, on that stage and he was saying that Jumbo Visma messed up a lot of tactics on that stage, some of which I agreed with. But he said the Hofstede satellite rider was, that working out for Roglic was pure luck. And I don't agree with that because it, in my view, is clearly by design. We see that quite often. And the fact that Hofstede was able to pull for two minutes is something that could be expected. Every rider of Hofstede's level, you've got to remember, Hofstede was told to go easy on that final climb. So he's been conserving energy. So for Hofstede, I think Amateur Pirelli put on Twitter that Hofstede did like 6.1 watts per kilo for two minutes. This is on his power at Strava data. Did 6.1, 6 watts per kilo for two minutes um, for Roglic, pacing him at 25Ks an hour, where a draft is important at that speed and probably save Roglic a fair bit of power especially when we're talking out threshold I don't think it's uh, beyond belief or luck or anything that Hofstede could be expected to do six watts per kilo for two minutes when he's been doing maybe done maybe the climb at just below threshold before then because he's been told to take it easy or or not go full gas going for the stage win so I don't I didn't really see that Part of it is luck for Jumbo Visma. I thought they made other mistakes on that stage with uh, basically following the, the rampant pace of Ida Schelling when they didn't need to um, with Bennett and that kind of burnt Bennett and Coos early. But, yeah, what did you think about um, – uh, by the way, we, we, I like Horner's, Horner's comments, etc. I watched some of his videos. Um, he, he, he's done it for every stage, not just the tour, so you've got to respect that, oh, every sort of major grand tour stage. But, yeah, what did, what did you think about that? Benji, did you think it was just luck that Hofstede was there at the right moment? No, I don't believe it's pure luck. I do believe that you need luck for it to happen. You need the race to fall a certain way for it to work out. And it worked out, but it was clearly put in place to have an opportunity of happening. And if you plan that out, and there's a limited chance that it works out, if it works out, you still get the credit for doing it. Because... They decided to do that early. They decided to try that out. And 
the likes of Vinyals and so forth, they did not have that. I don't believe that Carapaz had too much help of his team that day. To be honest, we saw on the small climb before Kovatia that Froome had that small attack with Carapaz. And perhaps you could say that that made the peloton a bit more tired or something, but I don't believe that the work of Vinyals that day really put too much of a teeth into Jumbo's ability to control the race at that point. So I believe that perhaps a better idea would have been to put a satellite rider for Carapaz up there. But the question then is, would the peloton be as Brandon close Rivera? to <laughs> <laughs> No, but perhaps like, I don't know. I feel like you got quite a few riders in there. If Hofstede can get in the breakaway and do this, then I believe that a medium climber at Ineos, like look at their team. They've got Froome, they've got Amador still. They don't have too much left. Sosa was horrible. This is Velta. I still they don't know. Do it. There's no way there. they could do it. With Amador and Froome. Froome's not good enough, and Amador, you can't send him up the road because if something bad happens, he's the one that has to pace Carapaz back. He's the guy protecting Carapaz. Jumbo Visma can only do it because they can leave Vingegaard, Bennett, and Koos back there protecting Roglic, working with him. If Ineos send Amador, the only guy that could fulfill that role, by the way, I mean, they let, we were... We put this down to talk about this, but let's talk about it now. Richard Carapaz and Ineos. Okay, Golas, Rivera, Sosa, Wirth, Froome, zero benefit at all. I mean, yeah, they, they, they controlled a break, Wirth and Froome, at like five and a half minutes one day, a, a small break. That's not getting you over the line. I mean, you got this is one of the weakest teams Ineos have sent in support of a big GC leader. And often the Vuelta, I mean, maybe that's not true. Maybe the Vuelta last year, they also, sometimes they're forgotten uh, Grand Tour. They had De La Cruz, I think, as their leader maybe last year. Dylan Van Baal, again, not on great form. Not his fault, by the way. He flew from Flanders to the Vuelta. Like, he had like a, not even a day's break just about between those races. He had a very condensed schedule. So... All they had, the only person that really performed on Ineos was Amador because Worth and Froome would have been better at a Giro-style race, not a punchy sort of barcool like this. So Carapaz only really got one guy that can help him the whole time. You you can't set up long-range attacks with just one guy. So I, I think Benji Carapaz is much better than I thought he was. Um, even this Vuelta, he keeps improving in my estimation, just how he's able to come second in this year's Vuelta with almost no team support. With I mean, the other riders like Vlasov and, and Co. maybe didn't either. It wasn't as competitive in like the fifth to, to eighth positions. But still, I think next year Carapaz and Thomas should be the uh, GC favourites for Ineos for the Tour de France, and they shouldn't even send Egan Bernal. Wow. I don't know. I don't know. You weren't man. ready for that hot take. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't ready for that. How the... Uh, I, I don't place Thomas on that level. And the reason uh, I don't do that uh, is because in 2018, Thomas was on that top level with well, everybody. He basically dominated by being great at the last kilometer. Now Roglic has that too, and I, I'd i say that Roglic is better at that than Thomas. That's my... Uh, 
my take here. I know a lot of British people watch this, so sorry in advance, but I don't believe Thomas is as good as a GC rider as you're thinking. And it's not about being the best in the world. It's about well, the way those two complement each other. You've got the Thomas, who's the best Grand Tour TT rider, apart from maybe Remco, who I don't know if he's doing the tour next year. Thomas is a better TT rider than than Roglic. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. Given Roglic Thomas, is a better climber than Thomas. I know, I know, I know, I know that. But Roglic maybe is going to be gaining what attacking the last K, getting bonus seconds. You got to remember, Roglic won this Vuelta by. 25 seconds okay so he's gained mostly all of his time on carapaz on bonus seconds so will roglic if he's got someone who's ahead of him on gc maybe i don't know i haven't looked at the route properly but there's more ttks thomas can put time into roglic tt kilometers and then you've got the attacking climber who i think is a better climber probably than roglic across three weeks carapaz You've got him as sort of an attacking rider. I just think that's a better combination to try and work against Jumbo Visma. Um, that's why Roglic is stronger than individually. Roglic is stronger than both of them head to head. But as a team, maybe they can try and do something. That's my point about Carapaz. I think he's got really complementary skills uh, to to Thomas. Um, I get it. Yeah, in the, I get it in the sense that you've got Thomas indeed that might be able to play the more defensive role after a time trial and Carapaz is indeed the more attacking and offensive rider that can put some pressure on Roglic while Thomas is in a bit of a, a golden seat in the back. But I feel like we're quickly writing off Bernal who won the Tour de France last year and he was the second best rider at the preparation races this year. And in the Tour de France, he collapses midway through, but he was not the worst rider by far in the first week and a half either. So I believe that we're basing this a lot on just the last week and a half of this Tour de France. And I think that Bernal is going to come stronger out of this. And I really believe that. And despite our history of Bernal, I do still believe that his time trial is not horrendous. It's average. It's not totally on the level of Roglic at all. But I feel like it's relatively on the level that Carapaz was at on the Vuelta regarding the time trial. So I think if those two time trials are together, why would you pick Bernal or Carapaz over Bernal? Just because Carapaz was better at this Vuelta, who was perhaps... I don't know. I feel like we're riding off Bernal too easily this way. Yeah, I mean, I feel like something weird has gone on with Bernal and the Instagram stuff he's been putting up, doing like a lot of physiotherapy. It seems like there's some sort of... Wasn't his like leg longer than the other one? I don't know. Well, maybe we'll talk about that on the Tour de France preview properly. Or, I mean, we don't want to make this just the Ineos podcast. Just a quick note. I had it down in my notes. Just to reiterate, and this isn't really a talking point or controversial, Primoz Roglic, there's something in his brain that 99.9% of people will never have. I couldn't have done it. To have that harrowing defeat on the biggest platform of the sport in stage 20 of the Tour de France when you've been wearing yellow, you've been laughing on stage 19, you thought your team thought it was wrapped up, you just you go from that, you don't call your season then and go home and, and lick your wounds. You get back out there, you come, where did he come? 
Ben, I want to I want to read out. I'll make sure I do it justice and, and read it out correctly. So this year, he won the Slovenian Champs Road Race, second in the ITT, won Tour de Land, winning two stages, won a stage of the Dauphiné, and was going to win GC, except for he just got hit by a car and had to pull out for precautionary measures. Um, then Tour de France obviously came second, winning a stage. He then came sixth in the World Champs Road Race, won Liège, won four stages I think it was at the Vuelta and one GC and the points jersey. One of the best seasons ever in history and the best overall rider in the world at the moment by PCS and UCI rankings. I think Wabanat's the best one-day rider in the world. So, yeah, I just want to say that is insane from Roglic to be able to do that. And the amount of race days he's had, I know there's probably other riders that had more race days, but he's had to have every day on at the Vuelta and Tour de France. Every day he's the guy trying to protect the jersey, trying to protect his GC position. That's different to just going in the breakaway a couple of days, trying to win a stage here and there in these in these races. He's had to be on the whole time and just an unbelievable season from Roglic. And I know probably there's the narrative that he fades in the third week, etc., I still don't know about that. I still don't know about the fading in the third week thing. Maybe is it more likely, what do you think, Benji? Is it more likely that he was at the back end of the most insane schedule ever, so it's not surprising what happened on Covertier, as well as that crash, which this is what I still think, I still think that crash in the Dauphiné affected him a little bit for the Tour de France. I don't know at all, but I feel like in general that we shouldn't look too much into the last week of this La Vuelta either. Uh, it's it's not even really the third week, but I feel like we can indeed say it like it is, and it's basically the end of a, a pretty messed up condensed season. But all in all, I feel like over the last few years that Roglic has shown more weakness in the last week than compared to the first two weeks of Grand Tours. Does that make him a weak rider in the third week? Not at all. He's just perhaps a bit more vulnerable in the third week for for small little mistakes or just in general that, I, I don't know, I feel like it might be too harsh saying that he fades away in the third week, but we've also seen it happen quite a few times. Last year in La Vuelta, the third week was also the weakest of the three weeks. But does it matter if you win the Grand Tour in the end? Not really. You only get criticized on it if you lose the Grand Tour after it. And I think that's where the difference lies. If you are able to make the difference high enough in the first two weeks of a Grand Tour to keep it at the end, then does it really matter? Probably not. I mean, depends. It depends on who he's going up against. If he's going up against Tadej Pogacar, yeah, it matters. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's an animal. Let's go through maybe... What's your top moment of this of this Vuelta? Mine is the Moncalvillo stage when I think yeah Carapaz and Roglic went head to head. That's one of the only times I can remember Roglic attacking multiple times, getting a big gap um, in any Grand Tour. That was yeah definitely one of my favorite moments of this entire season. Actually, I really like that that stage. I've got one stage that is perhaps not at all in the memory of people anymore, but I think the one stage that has stayed in my mind 
was I think it was stage eight. Was it stage eight? No, it was not stage stage seven from Vitoria Gastels to Villanueva. Um, it's a stage that when it comes to the profile, doesn't entirely look like it's going to offer too much outside of a transformative breakaway stage. It was somewhat that, but I feel like in general that stage had more to it. We had a stage with a bit of a circuit in it, and that was the stage where we saw a tiny bit of echelons, and where we saw that fierce battle in the breakaway with Valverde. And that breakaway battle will, will, will somewhat stay in my mind, to be honest. Just the sheer changes between Woods riding away there, the breakaway forming in two groups then, with Aramburu in the second group, Frail in the first group. If the first group fails, then Aramburu has an opportunity in the second group. So everybody except Frail in the first group has to work. And in that first group, you've got Valverde, a rider that has been at the top level of cycling for so many years. And it's the first time this year where we actually see him compete for a victory. And just that already gives it so much extra because... I feel like the last year, Valverde has more and more become a bit of a Zubelia in Grand Tools, where he subtly f- tries to get into the top 10, and then suddenly he is in the top 10. I think he tried it at the Tour de France, and I think he fell at the Tour de France. I'm not sure, but I recall him not getting in the top 10. Yes, he was uh, devoured in the final time trial, getting 12th in the end, but we didn't see him too much in the Tour de France, and if we compare that to La Vuelta, where in this stage he was up there, then I do believe that Pulverde has shown more in this Vuelta than he did in the Tour de France. He showed a better form, but he also wasn't impressive, as impressive as the final few years. But it still shows that he's got the spirit, he's got the experience, he, he's got some of the skill that he had in the past, and he's able to achieve these kinds of results. And he was pretty close that stage. And I think that whole stage in general stays in one mind a tiny bit more than the others because it just was full action from the start till the end. And I think that's why I was so focused on it compared to an Angliru, perhaps, who is always a lovely climb. But I was kind of disappointed on it, if I can say that. It was horrendous for the people that were riding on it. I don't know I don't know if I would survive riding the Angliru, genuinely. I'd probably die midway through. But... Looking at those riders riding at 5k an hour, no, probably a bit more than 5k an hour, but it looked like 5k an hour afterwards on the screen. And Hugh Carfi flying over that, that was all impressive, but it was just action for that one climb and perhaps only the last five kilometers of Angliru. And it was a very stressful battle on Angliru, but I enjoy stages that are a fierce battle all the way through. You don't see that too often, but that's why from... Last year's Vuelta, the only stage that is clearly in my mind right now is the stage from Guadalajara, which is not a mountain stage. It's just a flat stage, basically. And it was remembered because it was such an insane race all the way through, echelon-wise, and just the intense speed of the riders that day. And the eventual outcome of the stage is perhaps something that I don't fully remember anymore, which is kind of odd because the stage itself is in my memory quite a lot so yeah i feel like stages that are not per se queen stages can stick in your mind surprisingly and somehow this stage was the one that sticks with me most of it which perhaps says a lot about the vuelta not really having a queen stage to be honest i think you mentioned him there alejandro valverde i think that he's taken a proper step back this year and last year 
that stage you mentioned, normally you'd be expecting him to be winning that. I guess his reputation got the better of him because he just got attacked by Woods constantly because they didn't want to go to the line with him. But there were other stages, the one Magnus Court won. Just you'd be expecting him to be picking up a stage, it's particularly in a Vuelta with, with so many midi mountain stages and so many punchy finishes. And he really wasn't competitive on the sort of 1K to 2K 6% climbs, which is surprising. Roglic, Martin dominated them. Even the first stage, he wasn't up there really. So, yeah, I think, I mean, he's 40 years old. It's not surprising, but I think no no victory this year. No professional victory in 2020. That's the first time in a long time for Alejandro Valverde. He only won two World Tour level races in 2019, one stage of the Vuelta, and a UAE Tour stage three. I'm trying to see what stage that was, what profile that was. Uh, oh, yeah, that was up Jebel Hafid. So, yeah, I mean, the, the big stage, I'm not saying he had a bad 2019 because he still came second in the Vuelta, and that stage he won, actually, was ahead of Roglic on Master La Costa. One of the, that, that's the stage I remember from last year's Vuelta. But, yeah, I think Valverde, I don't know, he just, he'd just be such an annoying rider to have as a teammate if you're Enric Mas or Soler. He just... He's clearly riding for his own top 10 on GC. He's not picking up any stage wins. I mean, he's earned the right to do what he wants, but still, um, it'd be a little bit annoying. You can't get a pull out of him at all. He's my slightly disappointing rider for this year's welter. I thought he was going to pick up a stage, as well as Esteban Chavez, who is getting paid the big money at Mitchell and Scott. And I know he had a fair few mechanicals, but I mean, him and Mitchell and Scott. Terrible Vuelta. Obviously, the Giro, um, COVID hit them. Not their fault there. Pretty forgettable Tour de France as well. Probably not Michelin Scott's best year for, well, yeah, probably their worst year for quite a while. They didn't pick up a stage, I don't think, in this year's Vuelta either. I don't even remember them having riders competitive in in the breakaways, Benji. Do you, am I Stan, Rob Stannard? Is the Stannard and Dion, Dion Smith were their main stage winning candidates, but they didn't even um, they didn't get any climbers into into breakaways. I don't think, except for maybe Nick Schultz. I mean, Nick Schultz, Mikel Nieve, thirteenth on GC. Once again, what is the point of that? What is the point of thirteenth on GC at this year's Vuelta? Like, is that really doing like the sponsors like thanks for, <laughs> thanks for the 13th on GC and the zero seconds <laughs> of TV exposure instead of getting in some breakaways like why if David Godou can win two stages at this year's Vuelta Mikel Nieve could have won a stage or at least been in the uh, on the podium for a couple of stages they're similar level climbers uh Nieve and Godou in my estimation so am I being too harsh Benji or do you think there was something I'm missing there with, with Nieve. Maybe Chavez, I'm being a little bit too critical because of the mechanicals, etc. I just don't think Nieve is good enough at the moment. And honestly, I feel like Godou is higher at the moment. And we see Godou at the Tour de France. He had that injury from crashing in the first day, if I recall correctly. And he never really came out of that in the Tour de France. Had to give up on stage 16. In the Velta, he started off with genuinely good results. I think he was out of the top 30 uh, on stage three times in the whole Grand Tour. And he was top 20 in most of the stages. And he indeed ended up winning two that perhaps were against competition that he should win against in the breakaway. But 
been open on Twitter or said something in an interview in France that he believes that Gaudu should be the leader for FDG in the coming years in Grand Tours. And I feel like that's a very respectful thing to say by Thibaut Pinot because Pinot has never been the writer that is dishonest about everything. He's honest about his feelings on something. And as a consequence, I feel like he's at the moment in his career that he doesn't want to be disappointed again. I feel like it's literally that, which is perhaps a bit of a a weak thing if you talk about it. But on the other hand, you've got Godou who has shown clear talent, who needs to get an opportunity for stage races, in my honest opinion, very soon. And he's 24. He's at a level where I believe he can achieve stuff in Grand Tours. I don't believe he can win a Grand Tour. I don't believe he can top five a Grand Tour. But it would be great if he can get... Well, he did get eighth already in this Vuelta, so he could technically top five a Grand Tour, to be honest, looking at it now. So might it be worth for FDG to go for Godou, or do you believe that Pino still has an opportunity of uh, of shining true? I think that it's cool to see Godou having that step forward, but I, I don't believe that Pino was that terrible as a Grand Tour leader, and he no, was perhaps the best climber in 2019. <laughs> I'm an irrational Thibaut Pinot stan. I'm, I, that's why I criticize, That's why I'm so harsh on him sometimes because I think he's so good. And I'm like, no, Thibaut, it's not time to hang it up yet and say you're not going to be a Grand Tour contender anymore. I know, I know the record is terrible. I know, but he's a year younger than Roglic. Roglic is 31 and just had the best, one of the best ever GC years in a long long time maybe probably since one of one of Froome's years so I think Pino shouldn't it's not time to give up on that dream yet I mean just go to the Giro just go to the Giro again or just do something different it doesn't have to be the tour just or go to the Vuelta I don't know we'll see whatever fits best with you target Lombardia a race he's so good at target those Italian classics and then maybe do the year at the start of the year, get out of the Tour de France bubble where there's so much pressure, etc. Um, is he good? And if, is Thibaut Pino, if he turned up to the Giro on good form, I mean, haven't looked at the route, etc. But on a normal GC year, if it's not, if Pagatra and Co aren't there and they're going to the Tour, if, if Pino goes to Giro, I'd have him as a favourite for the podium. Still, even now. Um, so. That is better than what I think Godou can do. So I don't think it's – but, again, it's his decision, Pino. Um, I mean, the thing is, he's still going to have to train just as hard and probably will train just as hard. So just go into the race with less pressure. Just say, we'll see what happens. See how the legs feel. And, hey, maybe even just let Godou go and breakaways. Don't have the team – sacrificing themselves for you at all take that pressure off and you don't sometimes you don't even need to train for a lot of these stages if Jumbo Visma are there well there, there's your train for you there's the race being controlled for you so th- maybe if you get into the leader's jersey later you can change things up but yeah I think he should still go Pino and I don't see that as go to his future uh next year at least although he won Lavenir back in 17 so if you win Tour de Lavenir you probably win the Tour de France at some point based on Pagatra and Bernal's recent uh history but a few other things from this this welter benji 
any riders that really exceeded your your expectations? Anyone you thought, wow, they they are much better than I I actually thought they they were capable of. My the obvious answer, and I'll take the obvious one away from you is is Hugh Carthy. Yeah. Okay. You can you can take Hugh Carthy. <laughs> I think it's indeed a, a rather obvious answer that third. we did not see getting third at a Grand Tour this year. And he started off at Caja, showed real talent. It's weird to see that British riders come from a Spanish team like Caja Rural in the past. It, I still got, I can't wrap my head. Wow, can't talk either. I still <laughs> can't wrap my head around it. But he clearly has talent now. <laughs> we knew that, but it didn't come true in the previous years. And this is the first time next to one of the preparation races, I think, this year or last year where he really steps up to the top level of cycling. And this is great. I love having more people at the top of cycling. And it's a bit of the changing of the guard that they they call it every time. So, yeah, good choice of you. I've got a few names, but I'd love to turn it back one second and talk about one rider that disappointed me before I named the riders that exceeded expectations for me. And a rider that, not per se disappointed, but throughout the whole season of 2020, did not reach any position above the top 60 in any stage of a Grand Tour, and that's TJ Van Garderen. Like, I don't know what he did this year. I don't know. They took him to two Grand Tours, and he has not done anything. And you could say perhaps he helped out the team, but I didn't see him help out the team too much. So unless TJ Van Garderen got demoted to being a, a bottle carrier in stages... I really don't know what he does in the stages. And I feel like he might be closing towards the end of his his era, to be honest. And I, I'm genuinely disappointed with TJ Van Garderen. And that's not because I had him for a time trial somewhere in the season. But just in general, I feel like I expect more from TJ. And he won a stage last year. Was it last year that he won a stage in the a Grand Tour? No, he did not, apparently. Wait, what? 2018. What? 2018? <laughs> 2017? Oh my god, is it that old? It was, it 20... was 2017? Mate, I don't know what you... Oh my god. Have you been, have, have you been tr- in like a time? Have you lost a couple of years of your life, Benji? <laughs> Mate, he's, he's not been good for a couple of years. Yeah, but so not at this Grand level. 2019, what are you talking about? 2017, sorry, it's like two years difference. Oh, potato, potatoes, it's all the same. But let's let's skip it. Okay, right, is that exceeded expectations? Let's talk about those. No, 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 and... I, I accept your point. I accept your point that, te- okay. like, I don't know, I don't know what's what's going on. Um, you know, he, he's been a pro rider. He was at Rabobank Conti team in 2008. He's been a pro rider for a long time now. He, he was world tour when he was 22. 21 years old so yes it's a long time so maybe he's sick of it i'm not sure um it's, it's kind of education first i gotta say in our season awards we'll probably talk about them that they really overperformed this year but it's it's always the uh it's always the riders that aren't the big names on ef it's like kaithedo carthy before the welter wasn't like their biggest name um who else? Martinez with the Dauphiné. Martin, <laughs> Martinez <laughs> wasn't before the Dauphiné. Ruben Guerrero, etc. Um, is and then the, there's that. So that Betiol often like a proper elite one day rider. 
But like those guys are never in their marketing. And there's like the second half of the team that's in the marketing that you forget they're in the races. Um, but yeah, that's yeah EFO performance year. So that's not meant as a criticism. They did. They won a lot of a lot of stages and a lot of races. And good on them for extending all the guys that don't have contracts for next year uh, in 2021 as well. Bit of news for you. But sorry, Benji. Who who was your man that exceeded expectations? There's a few riders. Firstly, I'd like to take a look at the sprints of the first week and so on of this Grand Tour. And there was this Belgian sprinter that not a lot of people have heard about before this Grand Tour. And that is Herman Thijssen. I genuinely didn't really know too much of him. I, f- I knew he had a result at Hoixepel at the start of the year. Last year, he was decent at some U23 races, I think. And this year, he kind of broke through. And that's pretty cool to see. We have a rider that we have two Belgian sprinters in this Grand Tour, and I, I don't recall me able to say that too often recently. He got fifth on that stage four, and he got second on a stage as well after the, well, crucifixion of uh, Bennett in stage nine. And that is a better result than I expected compared to a Max Kant, who perhaps showed a lot of talent in the previous years, but also stepped up in this Velta for a seventh place, a third place, and another third place. So two podiums by Max Kanter as well. A rider that has been in World Tour for two years now and has not really been at the top level yet. And I feel like he's just breaking through now. He was great at sprinting at U23 level in 2018. I think he won a stage at Lavanier that year. And all in all, just one stage left and right in in, uh, in races, and I think mainly 2017 as well. No, 2017, he won one race. But all in all, he had the talent for sprinting. He came through in this Vuelta as well. So those are the two sprinters I want to point out. But also this French one, and I never really heard of him too much outside of having him on pro cycling manager at a certain point. And that's uh, Emmanuel Morin. He rides for confidence. He had two top, ten and, top tens and an 11th place in sprints in this uh in this Vuelta, he's 25 years old, perhaps a bit older than you need to be to be considered a young talent these days. But he was also pretty good at Tropicale Amisabongo at the start of the year. And he never really broke through yet on World Tour level. This is the first time he's getting proper top 10s in a World Tour stage or World Tour stages. So those three sprinters or riders that I wouldn't have per se had in my top 10 of sprint stage. And Max Kanter perhaps, but the other two were surprising to me. And Herben Thijssen, most of all, that he's able to get a second place after, I just didn't expect it. Yeah, not at all. Outside of sprinters, and if we look at proper GC, I was looking forward to seeing Vlasov. He had a bit of a bad day on the first day, and only came back from that after that, and slowly but surely made his way up in GC. And at 11 in the end, perhaps should have gone for an intermediate sprint somewhere to try and get past El Valverde, who is a 10th in GC at the end of this Grand Tour. But he's not really a rider that surprised me per se. I think Will Barta, we can say after that time trial, to be one of the decent level time trials, now able to win Grand Tour time trials in the future. That is for sure. So that is a rider I'd like to name. But I would also like to mention Clément Champoussin, French rider. He did not really do what we expected of him perhaps in the breakaways. He was in the breakaway once, I think, on Formigal, but I'm not sure it was Formigal. And outside of that, 
he was, for example, then for Moncalvio. God, it's not easy. And I hear a train in your background, and I'm super surprised by it. <laughs> but I'm going to pretend I didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in an Airbnb and, um, on the Central Coast. Let me mute my mic. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Uh, two top tens with Champoussin on mountain stages. And Auli Champoussin is perhaps one of the riders that France needs to look forward to in their future. The man is 22 and shows clear talent. And 31st in GC is perhaps not something that shouts wow, but it shows talent. And all in all, he was not a bad rider in this Grand Tour. And I look forward to seeing him in the future. Same for Kobe Gorsen's Lotto Sudal rider. Doing something similar, 24th in GC. And um, I think those are the riders that we're really looking forward to in the future. Chino made it. Do you believe that he overstepped himself? Or did you feel like this was coming, knowing what results he has already put on the table last year? I mean, when you look at the other 23 crop he came from and the, the names who he was mixing up with in the final climb of that under 23 World Champs road race in 2018, then him performing at a high level is not a surprise. In fact, he's probably been a bit underperforming compared to those other guys. So um, I'm pretty sure I'm getting the right World Champs road race. But so, yeah, I wasn't surprised by that. It was good to see that. I want to give you another name, Alfred Wright, fourth on the Puebla de Sanabria stage, 21 years old, British rider for Byron McLaren. Obviously, I mean, there's the aero benefits of the cold jersey, so, I mean, I don't know how much you have to factor into that, but still, fourth on a Grand Tour stage. I'm not sure what sort of lead out he was getting, to be honest. Probably pretty much looking after himself behind Phillips and Ackerman and Steimler. Very, very nice result, and not that far behind them either. Um, so that he's a man to watch. Could he be cleaning up? I know there's no Tour de Yorkshire next year, but if you know he's only 21, Tour de Yorkshire in 2022. Pray to God. Could he, I'd expect him to be picking up a stage, getting his top threes in that sort of stage or those sort of races. One to watch. And Philipson, if I had to take a sprinter, I'm gonna. Maybe people think I'm being controversial for the sake of it, but I genuinely believe this. If you had to give me one sprinter. Out of Philipson or Bennett or Ackerman, I'd take Philipson for the next for the next five years, or three, even maybe for the next three years, I'd take Philipson. Um, this year, Bennett's probably a better sprinter, but next three years, I'd take Philipson. Uh, I'd take Philipson over Bennett because more versatile. I think he's going to be better in a variety of terrain in Grand Tour stages. He, he doesn't mind a climb too much, and. Yeah, I don't think he look what he can do without too much of a lead out train. Although Ribashenko and uh, Oliveira did a nice job for him, I think, yeah, I think he's really, really talented. And I don't know if it's a shame. We'll wait to see whether it's a shame or a good thing that he's going to Alpes and Phoenix. Is he going to be competing with Tim Merlier for who's going to be the top dog in the sprints, or is Merlier and Mathieu van der Poel going to be leading him out, and he's going to have one of the one of the best lead out trains? in all of World Tour Cycling, even though they're a pro-conti team. Um, so, yeah, I can't wait to see what Philipson does next year, even in the Classics races as well. Do you think I'm a bit too high on Philipson, Benji? I know he's Belgian, so you're probably trying to temper your enthusiasm. He's only 22 years old. Yeah, and the thing is, he's indeed talented right now, but he's got so much growth potential compared to riders that have already put themselves on the table, like an Ackermann, like a Bennett, like you say. I believe those races have reached their max potential somewhat. Perhaps they can have a bit more of a percentage next couple of years or less. 
and Philipson just has a wider margin to grow in, I believe, in in the coming years. He stepped onto the World Tour profile by winning that stage in Santa Stradonander last year, and he started this season off with four top fives at the Santa Stradonander, and well, we could say Santa Stradonander, but it's not per se a horrible competition. Caleb Ewan's there every single time, and Caleb Ewan wins almost every single time, but we don't need to put the details on that. Caleb Ewan, as a competitor for Philipson in the future, for sure, and Ewan is also still pretty young. Like, we go over Caleb Ewan like he's been on the scene for a while, but I remember eight years ago hearing from this Australian kid that sprinted with his nose on his front tire like McEwen did in, in the uh, medieval ages. And yeah, Ewan stepped forward after a few years of being in the mix already, but I still believe that with his 26 years old, he's got so many years still to come at this top level of cycling. And no, I, I believe Ewan is going to... Do you believe that Ewan is just going to disappear at some point or what? Three years max. Why? I think I think sprinters drop off from 30 onwards is just massive. Um, is it because he's Australian? No, no, no. It's just sprinters, sprinters drop off way sooner than um, Grand Tour riders. Now, maybe someone can throw some statistics at me about why Rifle? that's not the case, but... Um, well, Marcel two years Kittle. ago, Rifle, I mean. <laughs> not now. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, like... Physiologically, you know, they need that that snap. I mean, Greipel, yeah, Greipel won stage in the Tour de France when he was 34 years old, so I get it. Um, but he still wasn't as good as he was, so he he wasn't he was no longer the best sprinter in the world, or uh, even probably the top, was he top ever? two or three. Yeah, but he was definitely in the top two or three, and I think yeah, yeah I think maybe maybe Ewan he can elongate it a bit more because he's not relying on putting down 2,000 watts, etc. But I think sprinting. Yeah, I think it's a young man's game, and I think thirty. Once you go only the wrong side of thirty, it really becomes a lot harder uh, for you, and there's going to be just new guys on the block. So yeah, that's we'll wait and see. Um, but yeah, I think Ewan's best years are last year, this year, and the next two years will be the best years of his career. I think if you look at Cavendish's best years, they were in a similar sort of time frame, and Cavendish and Ewan, I, I think, are similar style sprinters. In, as, as close a comp- comparison as I can get in terms of size and the way they win race, won races. Uh, Philipson, I think, is different to Ewan in the way he gets over climbs, the sort of sprints he can win. I think he's more versatile, more of a one-day guy. Can't wait to see him at Hank Vavel again with, with uh, Matthew Van der Poel and Alperson Phoenix. That's going to be really interesting to see how they use him, presuming he goes there. But, yeah, that's enough on him. Any last thoughts? On this Vuelta, Benji, I mean, what would you like to see next year for this Vuelta? What would you do if you were ASO trying to make sure you got the best competition to come here in the best form to prov- to have the best race? What would you, in, in an Olympic year, with, an, I think, an earlier Tour de France, do you need to do anything? Are we going to see stronger competition because of that nice gap between the Tour and the Vuelta next year? I believe that in previous years, the season always starts with the Vuelta being the last portion of the season. There's not too many riders that focus all out for La Vuelta because there's so many races beforehand that they could have a go at. 
And the Vuelta really becomes an idea just after the Tour de France, where you have both the riders that perhaps rode the Giro and still won the next Tour Grand Tour on the Palmares for that season. And you've got the riders that went to the Tour de France and perhaps failed in doing what they wanted to achieve. And that always brings an extra level of competition to La Vuelta. And I believe the fact that we've got so many riders at the top level of cycling right now, because I believe looking at the Tour de France, you've obviously got the Roglic, you've got Ogachar, but there's plenty of riders near, not close to that level, but like near that level somewhat. And I'm talking about a Thomas, I'm talking about a Carapaz, I'm talking about an Enric Mas, I'm talking about... He's 25. Yeah, there's so many riders at the top level of cycling right now that you're destined to have a good start list at La Vuelta next year. And as a consequence of perhaps also the fact that you've got the youngsters moving up this year, that adds a lot to it because Hugh Carthy, Kagan Hart, Hindley, we have to count them with the top guns, even if... Yeah, we have to count them. There's no if there. Carthy, definitely. I think I think Carthy's legit. You don't think Gagan Hart is legit? <laughs> I would take Carthy over Gagan Hart. I would take Gagan Hart over Carthy. Oh, I don't. I don't think you ever would have seen Gagan Hart keeping up with those big boys and winning Angleroo. I think that's a different level of talent. But anyway, the f- oh, I'm you doing this. I'm doing this. Carthy is twenty six. And I believe that he's nearing the top level that he can become. If we're looking at Tao Gegenhard, he is not 26. What age is he? 25. Okay, he's that's only, not he's too only, much. He's 25. He's not that young, yeah. <laughs> but I was, somehow, I believe that Gegenhard has still more growth potential than Carthy. That's what I have on my mind. And honestly, I believe Carthy is not a better climber than Gegenhard. I don't know. Gagenhart's been he's been in the sky setup for a long time. Carthy came into EF in two thousand seventeen. He's what a year old year older than him. I think he's got a better T I think he's got more T T potential. Um Yeah, I don't know. I I think I think Carthy I think Carthy's legit. I just think that Angleroo, you can't fake it on Angleroo. there's no hiding there. You just and I know it's a pure watts per kilo test, but he's he's one point nine three meters tall. Like he's, yeah, I think I think Carthy's legit, and yeah, I think he could win. He could win the Vuelta next year if, depending on the start list, depending on the profile, etc. Um, I don't know where he lost time this year. He seemed to lose time on all the really punchy finishes. So it it seems to me that a longer, steadier climb or just a longer, harder climb suits suited Carthy this Vuelta. The versus, yeah, the punchy finishes Roglic put not only the bonus seconds into him, but Roglic gapped him many times on those finishes. Um, I think that was even the the protest that the stage with that, that they were protesting about. Carthy actually lost like a few fair few seconds to Roglic, but yeah, I think I'd probably be taking Carthy over Gagenhart. Maybe that's sacrilege in the UK. I'm not sure. I also think Carthy is. Um, He's got a rare personality that I really I think he's actually really funny and I, I love his personality in the interviews. So maybe I'm just biased in that respect. If I wanted to attract bigger name riders to the Vuelta next year, what would I do? Well, if you don't want to pay Remco Evenepoel to turn up, just put a lot of TT kilometers in it, then you'll get Ghana, <laughs> Evenepoel, 
and then you get a lot of interest. Um, is Sagan going to be as big a name next year? I know the the Giro paid a lot of money for Sagan to turn up this year. Did they get the return on that? I don't think so personally. And judging from the comments Venue made in an interview the other day on Instagram that was translated by LFR, I don't feel like he felt like they got the best value for money either. So who are, the, who are going to be the big names in the game next year? I'd say Pagacha, Thomas, uh, Ganna, Avonapol will be will be the big names. I still think Rolich, back-to-back best rider in the world, He's not like what? What is it, Benji? I mean, that's that's a good note to finish this on. The winner of this year's Vuelta, back to back winner of the Vuelta, back to back best rider in the world. What is it about Roglic that doesn't? I don't know. Like, why wouldn't race organisers be lining up to pay Roglic to turn up to their Grand Tour next year? Well, firstly, I'm against the whole paying to have someone turn them up at the start because then they're basically a product you're buying. And looking at how that's turned out for Sagan, you will always have, if that rider disappoints, that race director being like, but he didn't do what we paid him for. But, dude, you shouldn't expect stuff if you... Well, Sagan tried his best, too. You could tell. Yeah. Like, he wasn't... Uh, He he probably didn't really want to go for the Chiclamino, and he knew it was gone, but he felt he had to because he was kind of getting paid to be there. I feel like Veni has me on two sides. I love his personality on some standpoints, but I dislike his personality on other standpoints. And I think I dislike his personality on this standpoint because I believe you can't really blame the rider for that, that you made a bad investment. That's your problem. It's your own choice that the rider just saw money and he was like, okay, sure, why not? So... Obviously, they're going to go if you pay enough. So all in all, the paying for having someone turn up, perhaps not really my thing, but you, you're right. Roglic is indeed a rider that is, you're saying all the Grand Tours might be lining up for him in the future, but Grand Tours should not have a problem with getting top riders in 2021 at their start. And it surprised me that they even had Sagan, well, we're paying for Sagan to be at the start. Like, definitely now, if it, if that was like in 2013, 2014 at his prime, I would have been like, sure, that's perhaps more of a thing. But it was at the point where we were starting to doubt Sagan's abilities. And we've seen Sagan throughout this year, and I feel like Sagan has not really been at the level that I... I wouldn't say that he wasn't at the level that we were expecting. I wasn't expecting more than this, but I feel like it's clear that he he just doesn't seem like he's enjoying cycling anymore. I don't know why, but I, f- I, I feel that way. If I look at Sagan on a bike right now, and it looks like he was just making way more fun with cycling in the last few years, like in 2014 is 2015, 20, 2015 is not a word, but I'll pretend it was. <laughs> 2016 just that era it feels like he enjoyed it more and i feel like the less he enjoys it the less cool stuff we see from him and perhaps yeah i don't know i said two years ago that i wasn't expecting sagan to after his bora hansgrohe 
contract ends to go for a transfer. I believe he'll do something else than cycling. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's funny to me. You kind of proved my point, Benji. You forgot about the man I asked the question about, and the question was why do why do people not think about this man enough? Primoz Roglic. Fuck. Primoz Roglic is on the level of peak Froome, <laughs> peak Contador. Yeah, sure. Peak peak Armstrong. You know, like I'm, I'm not I'm not saying he's doping. What I'm saying is he's like the most dominant. Well, he lost the tour. Maybe that's not right, but. <laughs> <laughs> the best overall believe- rider in the world, and but but then the question is, well, is he? Is it Jumbo Visma? How much, how would he go outside of Jumbo Visma if Carapaz was on Jumbo Visma and Roglic was on Ineos? Who would have won the Vuelta this year? So I think that plays into it as to why maybe he doesn't get the respect he deserves. It's also the bonus second thing, the sprinting in the last five hundred meters of the mountain stage thing. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem as dominant as attacking earlier and getting a 30-second gap. So if Roglic gets three sets of 10-second bonus seconds and everyone else at the same time across three stages, that's a 30-second gap. But if Contador got a 30-second gap on a stage on a climb, people would be like, oh, my God, Contador just like destroyed that guy that day, proper gap, way better climber, etc. But they're the same time gap. Um and I would say you can bank the Roglic time gaps before any Grand Tour with bonification. You can just bank them because he's going to w- get time gaps on people in the bonus seconds. So there's that element as well. Then I think it's maybe the English second language thing as well. They always get penalized. Like maybe he's not the most charismatic guy. Seems like a nice guy, but not the most charismatic guy. I saw there was an hour-long interview put up with him on social media. I mean, you couldn't pay me to watch, to watch that. Um, to be honest, <laughs> but oh, I think there's I like, all the, the confluence of all those things. And I'm not saying he doesn't have to be, he doesn't have to, his job is to ride bikes, but I'm saying that's the reason why maybe he's not like, and I know, by the way, I know if I put Richard Carapaz in the title of a video, Richard Carapaz gets more views than Primoz Roglic. Does that surprise you, Benji? No, because I believe that Southern American riders have a bigger following anyway compared to anyone from Europe. Because if you've put Iran in a title, you're going to get more views than. Not, it's not even from South Americans. Just, just the feeling in general? Uh, is it just, it's not you, even just the demographics it? of the countries. Maybe there's a few more mm-hmm. Ecuadorians, but it's a big difference. We're talking a 33, 30 to 40% difference. And. It's not just from South Americans. Maybe it's the Ineos I, thing. I'm not. I, I don't, I'm not sure to be honest. I do feel like looking at it, that Roglic, it might be a second language thing, and I've noticed that he doesn't seem too eager with press stuff. And just because he seems a bit more shy with press stuff, his Vuelta speech in 2019 was horrendous. Like genuinely, it had no personality in it, and. I was disappointed from that speech, and I believe that the first moment where I saw Roglic having actual proper feelings in a, in an interview after a race, this is not criticism or anything, this is just assessment or observation, you could call it, and the only moment that I, I felt like, yeah, he's genuinely happy about this, 
was after the time trial in this Vuelta because he seemed just to be freed and he seemed to be able to speak more freely in that. And yeah, I feel in general that the moments that I see Roglic having more personality and more a resemblance in personality that we have towards cycling. For example, Dondi crosses the line and starts shouting, ah, yes, I did it. I saw that on the time trial, and we also saw that on the final stage where he secured GC, that he did that. And those screams had more personality than the entire interviews throughout the Grand Tour. And this is not criticism. This is just the fact that I noticed that if he's in press or media or stuff like that, he's less eager to show his to show himself for who he is. And we know and, he's got it. Because yeah. you see the Yumbo Visma documentaries, he gets fired up. He's like, yeah. fuck those guys. I'm going to fucking destroy them in the TT. Or maybe that was Grisha that said that. The Rolex was like, yeah, like he, you know, he, it's in there. And um, there's like a bit of, like a bit of, um, like anger and mongrel in him too. Um, so maybe he wants to be a nice guy at the press. I did like his jokes about, I'm the, you know, not bad for a sprinter because he's won the points jersey the yeah, whole time. That's true. Um, and, and the people say, oh, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why, why are you criticizing a bike rider's personality? What does it matter? Well, you got to remember this is ultimately this is an entertainment industry. And do you think for Formula One and the sort of the growth, I would say, of, the, of Formula One and the consciousness of important demographics over the last 18 months, do you think Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo's personalities had an important part to play in that and i think the answer can only be yes i think sports are personality driven in combination with the exciting events on the field on the road whatever nba we know an example of it lance was as big as tiger woods and lebron james is today relative to the time period he was in because i know he had the advantage of the american market etc but because of the personality etc i think remco has got a bit of that and i think Cycling will grow a lot with some big personalities. And I've been talking with people about how we can bring that in. Maybe that's for our next off-season potty. But how about this, Benji? We could have had a stages in this year's Vuelta where all the five riders in that breakaway that Mike Woods won, Valverde, Freire, and Mike Woods, etc. all five of them have to sit at a press conference like in Formula One, at the same time, and listen to questions, answer questions. That would be so good for social media because I know, weren't they criticizing Mike Woods? Or like in the Giro, when who was saying that they hated Ruben Guerrero for sitting on? He was a dickhead in the breakaway all day. So, stuff like that because I – yeah. <laughs> That's one of the ideas to, we can have for next year's Grand Tours, have press conferences like that. But we've gone off topic now. Thank you. Before we get into the proper off-season content, thank Benji and I, by the way, haven't spoken to each other in a week, so maybe we got a little bit overexcited talking cycling to each other once again. Thank you for supporting us throughout this podcast, starting, I think, a week before the Tour de France at the Britannia Classic and GP Plouet, going all the way through covering every World Tour and Women's World Tour race since then. 
we're obviously continuing it next year. It's been an unbelievable success. Um, it's looking like it's going to be financially sustainable in 2021. And we've got some, we've both got big news for you in 2021 as well. I've been working on some pretty exciting things in the background, even in the last week. Benji's working on some stuff, some projects on his own as well. And hopefully we might be able to tease some of them out in the off season content, depending on how those talks or projects develop. But that's all from me today. Thanks to LaCole for supporting the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast through the Giro and the Vuelta. And I'll let Benji take you away. Okay, so I've got the opportunity of leading you into the end of this beautiful episode, but I believe that I should thank you one extra time because not only have you guys and girls supported us so freaking awesome throughout the season, you've brought us so many good ideas for the off-season. We're going to be doing off-season bots. How frequently don't know yet, we're going to be announcing that on the community tab of our YouTube channel and on Twitter perhaps or on Instagram or whatever pretty soon on how we're going to kind of schedule this off season because I feel like we should have some kind of schedule in it that people know when to expect the podcasts a bit. So we'll talk about that after this episode, Lantern. But in general, I believe that we need to thank you once again. It's been an absolute ride from the start. We started off with Britannia Classic as our first podcast because we wanted to see how it would develop and how we would be able to do a podcast like that and how we'd be able to talk to each other for an hour and be able to fill that time because that was something I wasn't sure about because I was used to making 15-minute, 20-minute videos on, on YouTube on my own channel and I think you had similar stuff. You prepare your videos, you check the footage that you want to use, you bind that together and you start talking about it but we never really had this long-form conversation thing you had with Rouge Report and so forth but I never really had that I think I did it once in the past so it was a bit of a new experience it really clicked like us as a duo I feel like we're we pro- we're pretty compatible in these kind of things and I feel like we're also pretty open to each other's feedback on this stuff and that really betters the content for it so I also want to thank you for this opportunity I um had the honor of doing this for one season i'm looking forward to the coming seasons as well but i'm also very much looking forward to the podcast and the off season because we've got so many ideas from you guys and if you've got any more drop it below if they're good we're going to try and use it most likely it's going to be an idea that's already on the list because i swear we've got like 150 things on there and um yeah that's that's crazy there's no way we can do 150 podcasts in the off season but we'll try and do whatever we can and um, there's some good ideas. I'm looking forward to it. And I want to thank you once again. That's basically it. So I uh, guess we'll see you next time. Ciao. Hugh Carthy is better than Tag Agenhart. No, he is not. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 